0: important question of your day. Hey, has this been Emo? Welcome to episode 110 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Olin from WashedUpEmo.com, and today we welcome Jason Heller, writer for NPR, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and Pitchfork. He's also been a long-time Denver resident, who was there at the beginning of the 90s emo era. Little known fact, he was in a band called The Blue Ontario, with members of Christy Fondrop. He was also very good friends with Matt Bellinger, a member of Planes Were for Stars, who recently lost his life. Jason wrote a beautiful piece for the local paper Westwood in Denver, and I thought it'd be great for him on to talk about Denver in the 90s and his memories of Matt. Even if you didn't know Matt, Plains Were Staken for Stars, or even Jason, It's worth hearing him talk about the time period. He speaks with great detail, and I found the information so fascinating, I cut myself out heavily from the episode. It was that good. I also wanted to let you know that this month marks 10 years of washed-up emo. I had no idea 10 years ago would lead to a podcast, DJ night, or even still updating the website, or my little fun site, isthisbanemo.com. You and the listeners have reached out to me over the last six plus years of the podcast from all over the world. I can't thank you enough. We've got something amazing planned on October 10th to commemorate the anniversary, so stay tuned. If you want to support, leave a rad review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Thanks to all the Patreon supporters, too. You are the ones that help keep the lights on. This episode is sponsored by Mac Weldon. For the best basics a guy can get that actually last go to MacWeldon.com. And if you want to get 20% off your order and support WashedUpEmo.com, use the code DEFENDEMO. Yes, you heard that right. DEFENDEMO for 20% off your order at macweldon.com This is episode 110 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Jason Heller. Um, so yeah, so I've
1: been living in Denver. Uh, I had been shopping at a record store here downtown, which still exists, called Wax Tracks Records. And speaking of Chicago, um, the more famous Wax Tracks uh, Records that was in Chicago and that spawned the famous record label, of course, the people who started that in Chicago were originally from Denver and originally owned the Wax Tracks Records here. And in the late, in the late 70s, they packed up and moved to Chicago Opened Wax Tracks Chicago and sold the Wax Tracks in Denver to the current owners who still own the place, uh, a couple of really awesome guys called Dwayne and Dave. Um, so in the 90s, I started working at Wax Tracks um, pretty soon after I got out of high school. And I wound up working there for 10 years. Um, and to bring this kind of back around to the topic at hand, um, I had been in a band. Um, I was in a band uh, called uh, kind of a sort of a slightly emo-ish pop punk band called Crestfallen. Um, there was also a screamo band, I think from back east, called Crestfallen that popped up a little bit later in the 90s um, and got a little bit of a name, um, but we weren't that band. Um, anyway, we kind of had sort of a Sam I Am, jawbreakery kind of sound and we were here in Denver, and we put out a seven-inch, and I we sold it at Wax Tracks, and I wrote on the card um, that you know the divider card in the seven-inch bin it, uh, that you know it Crestfallen seven-inch, uh, if you like. Jawbreaker and Dag Nasty, check it out. And, of course, since I worked at the record store, I could shamelessly plug my own band at the record store, uh, which I did. So that record came out, I think, in 95, and it was maybe a year later um, that this kid comes in to wax tracks and he brings one of my records up to the counter. um, And we started talking because he picked it up because it said Dag Nasty and Jawbreaker, and he loved those bands. And, uh, and I said, Oh, that's my band's record. And we started talking. He was a, you know, he was a teenager at the time. He must've been maybe about 17 or so. Um, and I was maybe, you know, about 23 or something like that. So we got to talking and, um, uh, it turns out the kid's name was Garrett O'Donnell, and he was from Peoria, but his mom lived um, not far from Denver, so he would take, take trips out here frequently to come and see her. Um, and so we were like, well, hey, like you know let's keep in touch and all that and pretty soon after I moved into a warehouse venue which never had a name it was just kinda called the warehouse on Arapahoe Street uh, in downtown Denver back before Denver became super developed and there were actually warehouse spaces in downtown Denver um, where you could live and put on shows and that's what we did we were kind of the big DIY venue in Denver at the time Every Discord band that came through, unless they were really big, um, you know, uh, would play at our place. Um, a- at that time, you know, you're talking about bands like uh, Blue Tip, Crown, Hate, Ruin, that era uh, of Discord bands. Um, Smart went crazy. Um, the makeup, of course, played. Then we would also, you know, just. Well, a couple of the guys from Christie Front Drive also lived in the warehouse with me. And so it was a lot of bands that they got to know. Jimmy Eat World would always play there. Promise Ring would always play there when they came through. Texas is the Reason played there. Um, And uh, I moved into this warehouse and began kind of booking most of the shows at a certain point. This was around 96, 97. And Garrett, when he would come out and visit from Peoria, he would stay at the warehouse with me um and at this point he was at a high school and he was in a band called dismiss um which he would always get so mad because he would tell people the name of his band was dismiss and they would say the Smiths, and he'd be like no dismiss d-i-s-m-i-s-s um and he gave me a seven inch uh, of his band um and it was awesome stuff super raw sloppy like, just great kind of emotive pop-punk stuff like so many, you know, people were doing at the time, you know, like a super, super sloppy Lifetime or something like that, you know. Lifetime, obviously, we're a super tight band, but um, so it, right around that time, my band Crestfallen broke up. We practiced at the warehouse. We shared that practice space with Christy Front Drive. They broke up almost at the same time, and that's when I started... Uh, playing with Ron Marshall and Jason Beacon from Christy Front Drive, we immediately started a band um, called The Blue Ontario, which was a little more shoegaze, but still pretty. It was if Christy Front Drive went shoegaze, basically. It was kind of the sound of it. Um, And I I started talking with Garrett, and he was like, well, I have this new band. Um, Dismiss broke up, and he had a new band in Peoria called Planes Mistaken for Stars, And he was like, "Um, do we really want to go on tour? And the Blue Ontario, my band, was already touring. So the very first tour that Planes Mistaken for Stars did was with my band. We took them out to the West Coast and the Southwest for, I think, maybe about two weeks or a week and a half or something like that. Um, and that was in 1998. And their first EP, the self titled Planes Mistaken for Stars EP, which is obviously a legendary record now, you know, Copper and Stars is on it, you know, which is one of their most beloved songs, and rightfully so. They, it had not been picked up and reissued by Deep Elm yet. Um, it, it was just the, their own uh, handmade versions uh, of it that they had put out. Um, and I, it might have only been on CD, I think, at the time. It was maybe their own handmade CDs.
0: Do you remember that um, era where no one bought vinyl and it was like, if you didn't have it on CD, yeah. get the fuck out?
1: And vinyl and vinyl was, really, and still is, really expensive to make for a DIY band. So, yeah, so that was kind of the first tour. And it was, actually, we played a show toward the end of that tour. It might have been the last show on the tour. Um, and it was in Tempe, Arizona, and the guy from Deep Elm flew out to see us play, and that is when he offered us a record deal and Plays Mistaken for Stars a record deal. And for reasons I won't it, go into, especially because this isn't a story about my band, um, uh, Jason uh, from the other Jason in the Blue Ontario refused to. Uh, to put out anything with Deep Elm. He actually turned out a lot of labels for crazy reasons. Planes took them up on it, and the rest is kind of history from there.
0: That's crazy. Can I just say you're really good at telling stories?
1: Oh, thanks, man. (laughs) You know, Boys Life played at our warehouse. All the time back then, to all those guys, you know, Giants Chair and Boy's Life and that whole crew, and uh, yeah, you know, still, still love the hell out of those bands a lot.
0: Um, yeah, I, yeah, definitely. I want to get back to Planes, but before that, you kind yeah. of mentioned all those bands that played with you in Denver, and Christy Front mm-hmm. Drive is a catalyst to this scene more than I think people realize or give credit.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, we didn't really get, because it was before the internet was what it was, uh, there weren't even really, you know, that many, you know, like message boards, Caulfield records actually, you know, that Christy Front Drive was signed to, and, you know, Bernie from Sideshow, who were another great band, you know, uh, he ran Caulfield and that was one of the first kind of message boards for Emo at the time. Um, And that was actually kind of a really big deal, like getting back then, getting on the call field message board and being able to interact um, with other people around the country. But for the most part, we didn't really get that much of an idea that Christie front drive was having an effect um, around the country. Granted, very underground, completely underground at that point. Um, But, yeah, you're absolutely right about all those things. I mean, Carrie McDonald, you know, the bass player from Christy Front Drive, who was one of my roommates at the warehouse. I remember working at Wax Tracks, and he came in one day with the, the Gloria 7 inch, the first Mineral 7 inch, and, you know, that he put out after having played with them down in Texas and falling in love with them. And he was like, Yeah, I want to consign, you know, this new band Mineral. I just put out their 7 inch. And no way. Yeah, and I would be. I was like, "Oh, who are these guys? What are they all about?" You know. And of course, Mineral would come play the warehouse all the time, uh, and those guys, um, you know, became real good friends.
0: Um, what do you think about that time? I mean, meaning that it, it was the last moment before the internet kind of took hold, and there was the unknown. And I, I sound really old when I say that every time, but it is such a defining moment.
1: It made the biggest difference in the world. It really did. And, you know, by the time I moved out of the warehouse in 1997, um, and it was obvious things were happening and changing. You know, basically, I would come home from work at the record store, check the answering machine, the actual machine, and there would be bands, you know, that had called. There would at least be a couple bands a day looking for a show, and then we would either set it up or or tell them we wouldn't be able to. Um, and it was always just a handshake. It was just 100% DIY. And then it started getting to the point at the end when I moved out, um, you know, where we would have field come through. And bless them. I love them. And, you know, rest in peace, John Bunch. I mean, I, I absolutely adore that band so much. But it was getting weird because now booking agents uh, and managers were all of a sudden in the middle. It, we weren't, we are just living in this warehouse illegally putting on shows um, and just cooking a pot of spaghetti for the bands, you know, before the show, like it was just, and they just slept on the floor, you know. And now all of a sudden there were tour uh booking agents and tour managers sending us riders for the band. And it's like, are you fucking serious? Like, that's not what this is about. And, and, and you could just start to see how things were starting to change, you know. Like Knapsack uh, played, and it was right when, uh, oh, what's his name, Sergi, from Nap, from Sam I Am joined the band, and it was like this kind of huge deal. It was like it was like a fucking rock star, you know, was like coming in. You, I mean, Knapsack were great, and we loved them, but it was just like, oh, it's just Blair, you know, it's just our buddy. But then all of a sudden it was like, oh, dude from Sam I Am is like in the band, and all this stuff. And it, everything just seemed to start to snowball. Here's a f- one funny story I'll tell you about that warehouse real quick, and then we can move on back to planes if you want. I was sitting... Um, at the warehouse one night, and we're just nerds, man, all of us who live there. There's no wild parties. I didn't drink at the time. I I, uh, am straight edge again now, and I was at the time. And it wasn't a big party scene or anything like that. We really were just kind of a bunch of nerds. And I was sitting around watching TV one night, and I got a phone call. And this guy on the line says, and this would have been ninety six or ninety seven. And he goes, "Hey, um, this might sound weird, but you know, a friend of mine gave me this number, and my band is on tour, and we're we're going to be in Denver tonight. And you know, I was wondering if, like, you know, a friend of mine gave me this number because he said this is just like where kind of some people live who are into cool music and might want to kind of hang out." Um, and, and stuff like that. And I was like, it was maybe 7 p.m. and I was already in for the night, just like watching TV, just being a total fucking dork. And I was like, oh, cool. I was like, who gave you this number? And it was Sonny K, um, you know, from the VSS and GSL Records who used to live here in Denver and who had moved away to the Bay Area at that point. And this guy on the phone is like, yeah, Sonny gave me your guys' number. And and I was like, well, honestly, I I told the guy, I'm like the only one here at the house. Everyone else is out doing something. And you're welcome to come over and hang out. But honestly, I'm kind of in for the night. If you want to come over and fucking chill out and watch some TV or like... You know, we have people come through all the time, you know, sometimes on tours, sometimes just stopping by on a tour on their way through. Um, If you need a place to crash or anything like that, like, you're welcome. And I could hear the other end of the line, the guy kind of like seeming a little confused. And then he's like, "Um, no, that's okay. He's like, I really appreciate it, but maybe I'll just try to find something else going on tonight. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool. And I go, well, what's your name anyway? And he goes, well, my name is Will. And I go, what band are you in? And he said, fucking the Foo Fighters.
0: No way.
1: And it was fucking Will Goldsmith, and I was like, "Holy fucking shit, man! Like things are getting weird, at, like in this scene. You know what I mean? Like that all of a sudden, you know, there what was once such a small, hidden, insular thing is just was starting
0: to blow up. And I think it that happens every you know every time you know for a scene, but that but since that point. There's been the internet where I still feel like this one needed to be like, well, I know Jason who works at the warehouse and he told me to go, or I saw it on a flyer or I read it in a zine or it it took a little work.
1: Yep. It really did back then. It took a little bit of effort to find out and even when you were plugged into the scene you would miss shows you you would hear about shows after they happened you know um it was very much dependent on on all that and we were by no means the only diy venue there were a lot of house venues around town um and stuff like that where you know where bands would play um so you know it, it 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 you know, in some ways, I, you know, I really hate to be the person, one of those people that's just like, oh, it was better then because, you, you know, yeah, it was cool that you had to make the effort, but you want to know what? There wasn't a whole lot of diversity in our scene. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of inclusion. People were cool, you know what I mean? But, you know... it, it at the same time, there was, you know, uh, as embarrassed as I am to admit it, there was a certain amount of snobbishness to it. Um, There was a certain amount of... um, You have to at least remotely look like you belong there. Uh, You know, at at a show or at the warehouse or something. Um, And I'm not going to say it became like a fashion scene or anything like that, because we all shopped at thrift stores and wear dumpy-ass thrift store clothes, you know what I mean? But... In retrospect, you know, it wasn't all as great as it could have been, you know what I mean, at all, and in a lot of ways, what happened with um, the internet and the scene blowing up, um, not only was it natural, it was good in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of these bands needed to be heard. A lot of these bands, it would have been a crime if they had been, um, if if only 5,000 people in the world had ever heard of them. And that's still the fate of a lot of those bands from that era. There's the 5% that everyone's heard of and the 95% that people still have to dig to find out about.
0: Why do you think that the the, the word itself, I know it morphs and, and uh, it becomes different to different people and different generations, the word and other... Other words have been bastardized, but I don't know one as much as this one
1: has. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Christy Front Drive, like most bands of that era, fucking hated being called emo. They loathed it. They hated it. They hated... I think they just hated being called anything, really. Um, You know, those guys would tell you that they listened to like Buffalo Tom as much as they listen to Drive Like Jehu. I mean, I remember having an early conversation with Eric when I first started hanging out with those guys, and he was telling me how great Bob Seger was. And this was (laughs) not cool in, like, 1994, you know what I mean? 95, like, it's still not cool now, I guess. But it was an interesting perspective because I think if there's one thing that was defining of the emo scene because it doesn't the word doesn't bother me now um at the time was it was a lot of kids who obviously came from some kind of punk or hardcore background but they wanted more they had to, it, it Like both as listeners and as musicians, there was, there had to be more. Um, You had, it was about having a broader horizon, you know, not as broad as it possibly be. Obviously there wasn't a whole lot of, oh, I don't know hip-hop, you know, or r and B being listened to. We're still talking a lot of fucking white people listening to a lot of white music. Um, And so, you know, there there was still some blinders on in that regard. Um, But still, the whole idea was to me that... All the things that you ever liked as a kid, um, and that you ever liked growing up, you you could find a place for them in your music. You could you could mix it all together that you didn't have to feel guilty about like liking some old you know record from the '80s, or you know, a lot of us were born in the '70s who were in that scene, and so you know, even going further back, um, you know that that you know, we could kind of have a broader palette and still make stuff that was, you know, somewhere in the realm uh, of the punk and hardcore scene. Because it wasn't indie rock, you know what I mean? Yes,
0: and that's the thing that I think people sometimes get super confused. Like, I was not into indie rock. Like, it was, that was a whole, I mean, I didn't mind it if, but I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't a part of it. I felt a part of... The punk or yeah. hardcore. And yes, as you said earlier, there was a bunch of bullshit. I did get, you know, people got made fun of. There was dumb bullshit that happened. That's yeah. just how it, but overall, like, it felt like it was something different. And the indie rock felt more con, uh, popular or, you know, mm-hmm. it was, it was more, it was even more pretentious. <laughs> I felt like it
1: was. And it felt older. It felt like yeah. an older scene. You know what I mean? Like people who are like, like post-collegiate or something, you know what I mean. Whereas for us, it was it was a slightly younger feeling kind of thing, um, and and it was the fact that it took place in the infrastructure of the punk and hardcore scene, um, and that's that and a lot of the intensity. You know, Christy Front Drive, obviously one of the most melodic bands out of that whole era. But when you saw them live, man, it was intense. I mean, it was a very intense. It was not feel good, like, doo-doo-doo. It was emotionally, like, not emotionally sad. It was emotionally devastating. It was taking sadness and turning it into anger or maybe the other way around. Um, and there was those those layers and that kind of complexity um in in the way that that a lot of these bands presented themselves that it was real easy to come along and just kind of like you know kind of copy the moves or copy the riffs um
0: but it was coming from a place it was coming from yeah. that when I say it was euphoric, like emo to me yeah. was not sad. it was I'm seeing a band give every ounce and it's it's taking something that could break at any moment
1: absolutely and it was funny man people it, there was everyone had a great sense of humor about what they were doing everyone was a fucking wise ass it was all everyone realized that it was i mean you know the promise ring like come on like you know they're up there singing you know these like poppy songs almost like like, little kids sounding type songs, except really well-made and really well-produced. And it's like, uh, but almost like childlike, you know, like melodies. And it was like, this was, like, everyone was conscious of what they were doing. You know what I mean? There was, in a lot of ways, a hearkening back to childhood. It was the music of people who have lost their innocence, lost their childhood, and just want to desperately cling to the last remnant of it, while some of that innocence, it, 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 but at the same time, not comp- not overlooking the fact that things weren't perfect and that you know, that obviously you, you really can never go back to being like a kid again. But there was a lot of that kind of sense of like fun and wonder and silliness. Um, I think it was just a, to me such a complex thing. There were so many things wrapped up in it. And to see it reduced in the way it's described or, or carried on in some ways, and I don't mean to say that you know successive waves of emo bands particularly a lot of the ones from the past few years um, aren't doing amazing things completely on their own terms um, and yet still in the tradition of what came before but there was something about the context of what was going on at the time that um, you know it's been said a million times but the 90s were really a decade that was so much about irony and emo wasn't ironic, but it wasn't completely free of some of that kind of self-consciousness um, in in a good way, I think. But I think in a lot of ways, it was just a reaction. You know, it was, we, it, you know, it just, the, the first half of the 90s was, how do you mumble lyrics? How do you write lyrics so that they don't particularly make any sense off the page and that you can't necessarily understand what people are even singing. Um, okay, well, how do we take, how do we do something that kind of reacts against that? And that, that is a little more earnest, um, and is a little more direct, you know, Nirvana, love them to death, but not a band that's directly connecting. You've got to decode Nirvana a little bit. um, and that's great. That's part of the power uh, of why they're so amazing. You have to decode Led Zeppelin, you know what I mean? And there are certain bands like that. You had to decode Pavement. Um, though I would say, obviously, Nirvana were a much more emotional band than Pavement ever were. Um, but it was, it was kind of a scraping away of that. And it's like, it, you know, let's, in a lot of ways, try to, to more directly convey... Uh, a lot of things, and to bring it back to planes mistaken for stars, to me, I figured emo was pretty much done. You know, I was like, okay, end of the '90s, all these bands are getting big. All of a sudden, we've you know got booking agents calling our crappy little warehouse. Um, well, this is exactly what it happened a few years ago with grunge, right? So, you know, it, basically emo will just peak and. They'll sign a bunch of bands, and then it'll just kind of go away. Um, and, of course, that didn't happen. <laughs> the biggest wave of emo was just around the corner. Jimmy Eat World put out Clarity, right? Their first uh, major label album, Second. which Eric thing. Backup Folk. Second. No.
0: Static was um, on Capitol. St- us, yep. That, yep. So. But what's crazy is, first... is that, I mean, no one fucking... Like, I saw that band open up for Promising. I'm sure you saw, like, the band, the label. Like, I'm surprised they let them make Clarity. It's a, it's a miracle that that record got made. <laughs> yep.
1: Yep. Yep. So Craig the first and one came that. out, and no one bought it. Uh, no one. And it disappeared. You know what I mean? And it was one of those things where, okay, they tried. And if Jimmy Eat World can't fucking break through, which, of exactly. course, it was right before they actually did... Then what are the chances of, the, of any of these bands? So planes mistaken for stars come along, and you know at that point emo had really cleaned itself up by the late '90s. Everyone uh, was clean shaven. Uh, everyone had like neat haircuts. Um, you know, everyone, they didn't necessarily dress, like, dress up or anything like that. But, you know, it was like, it wasn't, you didn't wear, like, torn up, dirty clothes or anything like that. And then planes of Mistaken for Stars come on tour with us. And they're just, like, grubby, fucking, just, like, scuzzy dudes from Peoria, Illinois. Bless them. Like, I love them to death, you know. And I come from a fucking uh poor background, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's not like me judging from a place of like uh, upper-middle-class sensibility or anything like that. But I was poor. I didn't want to look poor. Um, I wanted to kind of look sort of neat, you know what I mean, even if I was wearing thrift store clothes. Um, and then all of a sudden, Planes Mistaken for Stars are just like, not like crust punks, you know what I mean? But just like these kind of grubby dudes and their equipment is all like super cheap and fallen apart, you know, and, and they they were super sloppy at the time. Um, and it, it, we went on tour with them and it was so night and day cause the blue Ontario, we had tons of equipment, um, tons of effects pedals, um, drum triggers and samples and all kinds of crazy shit and then and you know our songs are like 7-8 minutes long and then Plains the Mistaken for Stars gets up there before us every night and just fucking lays it all on the fucking stage uh, and just like it, it was and yet at the same time you know obviously Copper and Stars still resonates with a lot of people <laughs>
0: I joke about being washed up, but one day realized my sock and underwear drawer was full of my basics my mom had bought me It was time to step it up and grow up pretty much so I didn't want to think about it again Mac Weldon was the mom I always needed yet didn't nag me about my messy bathroom Easy ordering returns and long-lasting really spoke to me. They're also supportive of the podcast and my messy bathroom you want to try their line of underwear search, socks, and basics with a guarantee you'll dig it or you can return it for free right now, Washed Up Emo listeners can get 20% off your order with the code DEFENDEMO at macweldon.com. All one word, DEFENDEMO. You're supporting the show by doing this and stepping it up to be on our way to both being Washed Up.
1: Because it's an amazing song, but it's a really am- amazing, it, it marks a big transition, you know what I mean? To me, it's where a lot of the stuff that had bu- been bubbling and starting to get big, you know, particularly bands like Hot Water Music and stuff like that, um, where that kind of collided with the more emo side of things, um, but it was the rawness of what planes did. And obviously that was as melodic as they got. You know what I mean? They, they went into much darker territory after that. Um, but I just remember on that tour thinking like, this is not like, I didn't know what to make of it. I really didn't know what to make of it. I loved Garrett. I got to know all those guys. Um, You know, this was the very first lineup of the band when Aaron was still their bass player um, before Jamie Dreyer had joined. Um, But it was just one of those things where... uh, I mean, I was just blown away. And within a year, planes um, packed up and about a, a whole army of their friends... Uh, packed up in Peoria, too, and they all moved out here to Denver. They moved out here in 1999, and um, they the first show they did when they got here, after they moved, um, was at a record store out here that used to do a ton of shows called Double Entendre Records. Um, when the warehouse stopped doing shows around 97 or 98, um, Double Entendre, which had been around... Um, It was an actual storefront that carried mostly um, hardcore and emo stuff. Uh, They kind of picked up the slack um, when it came to shows. And so Planes played a show there, their first show as a Denver band, and it was huge. The excitement in Denver for Planes, who no one knew who they were yet, it was Denver you know, Christie Front Drive had broken up. Um, we didn't really have much going on at the time. And it was really impressive to us that someone would move to Denver. And of course, now we have bands moving to Denver fucking every goddamn day. You know what I mean? And it's just a common thing. Half the bands in Denver aren't from Denver. Um, probably how Seattle was, you know, like in the early nineties, not that Denver is a Seattle or anything, but it was a really big thing, and it wasn't just the fact that they had moved here. Um, it was the fact that they were this total breath of fresh air, uh, you know. Um, they were just very real, um, very un, un- edited people. <laughs> they just were fucking hellraisers, man. And the emo scene, at least in Denver, was almost puritanical. You know, if there was drinking at shows, you kept it, you, you didn't do it in the venue, you would do it around the corner, and you didn't get so drunk that you seemed drunk at the show, at punk shows, sure, um, but at emo shows in Denver, no, it, when people were promiscuous, they kept it. On the down low, Um, there was just as many sexual shenanigans going on as there were in any scene, and I don't mean things like sexual assault and like that. I'm sure it was going on then as much as it is now, unfortunately. But I just mean the usual young people in the music scene thing, you know what I mean, where you're just out there being a 20-year-old person, you know what I mean, in a music scene, which includes sometimes a lot of sex. That wouldn't get talked about or or shown in a lot of ways. And planes totally they didn't they didn't do things like that. Uh, they did all those things, but they didn't keep it on the down low. It was very much they were just like this like circus act. I mean, they were just you know uh, just completely heart-on-their-sleeve dudes. Um, So they really kind of changed, you know, a lot of stuff here. And then, of course, as they started to gain visibility on the national scene, um, unlike when Christie Front Drive started to get some visibility around the country and there wasn't an easy way to find out, we're talking the early 2000s. So everyone knew, you know what I mean? The Internet made it all very clear. Um that plane's mistaken for stars. were doing all these big tours um We're getting signed to no idea uh and obviously, their music um just started to get heavier and darker um and their hair got longer and longer, <laughs> and they got scruffier and scruffier um and it was just an amazing thing
0: what should uh, what should people know about math that maybe they don't know,
1: yeah. So Matt Bellinger was the original uh, founding guitarist. He was actually in the last lineup of Dismiss with Garrett. Um,
0: I love when you say that band name.
1: Yeah, I got to enunciate it as clearly as I can. Um, So uh, Matt and Garrett basically were the core um, of Planes. Um, So Garrett, obviously the front man and the the lead singer, um, but Matt and Garrett both played guitar, and Matt was... It was funny because, you know, at the time, it was just the beginning, um, you know, with bands like Grade and things like that, of the emo scene having the clean singer and the screamy singer, right? Such a cliche mm-hmm. now, and it became a cliche. But Plains was unique in the fact that they had one guy screaming and the other guy screaming even more inhumanly. <laughs> So, so Garrett's like growling, but there's melody to it, right? But he, it's completely guttural, and it sounds like he's like gurgling blood or something as he's singing. But then you have Matt, who is just fucking screeching, and, and those were his vocals. Um, and so he kind of brought that... he, The dynamic that I always saw between Matt and Garrett was that Matt kind of always brought things closer to the edge of chaos with his vocals with his guitar playing garrett is a very classic singer songwriter um even of all the the you know stuff that planes has done you strip it all away and there's an acoustic song that can be played underneath it um And Garrett writes songs very much, just like a classic singer-songwriter does. Um, Whereas Matt had just a lot, uh, he was just drawn a lot more, uh, even more to, you know, the noisier side of things and the more chaotic side of things. Um, Which is really interesting, because in real life, he was relatively he would always come across as a relatively shy and quiet person not like not like pathologically so right you wouldn't look at him and think he was a wallflower or anything like that but compared to everyone else in planes he was you know everyone had their own personality and garrett was always the ringleader and and kind of the the loud the loudest voice in the room but And Matt could raise fucking hell. There's no doubt about it. But there was always this sweetness to him. Um, You know, I he it was just great. You know, I toured with Planes with some of my bands in the 2000s, and I roadied for them once when they went out and did "Pre for Peace" with Cursive, which was I think 2004. Um, And then I played in a in bands with. Some of those guys, uh, with with mostly with Neil Keener and uh, and uh, on and off with with Chuck French too here in town, and as the lineups would change um, in planes and the band kind of kind of evolved, um, it, I, I was always struck by how you know the the whole dynamic of the band um, was so adaptable and that became really apparent when Matt left the band because it seemed at first like, well, there's no way Planes could keep going without Matt in the band. Um, But they did keep going and still made great records without him. But definitely there was a shift um, because Matt was uh, kicked out of the band in 2006. Um, And when you're... Lifestyle <laughs> is so crazy that you can't, that planes mistaken for stars can't, <laughs> can't, can't withstand you. Um, that means you're probably dealing with some heavy shit. And as it turned out, Matt was dealing with a lot of very, very heavy things, um, uh, with substance abuse, with emotional problems. Um, and he was by no means alone in that regard, in, in that circle uh, at the time. But he was the one who wound up exiting the band. Um, and it was really tough. I mean, it was, if there's ever a band that's like a family, you know, that's them, and, and everyone took it real hard. Uh, and, I, you know, I think that I don't know how much Matt ever really got over that you know, he became friends again with everyone in Plains, Garrett included, but, um, and it's a story that's happened a million times with a million bands, you know, and, and that's just the way it goes sometimes. But, you know, it was just as Plains was making what they thought was a big leap, uh, at the time, you know, they thought that signing to Abacus was a huge thing. Um, uh, where there were rumors at the time that they were going to be signing to relapse, which in hindsight obviously would have been way more wiser for them to do. Um, Abacus was an imprint of a a, a label that was um, subsidiary of Century Media, so it looked real good on paper and the money looked real good, but it folded almost immediately and, and, you know, those guys kind of got the shaft. So in a way, um, you know, Matt dodged a lot of, the real frustration that planes subsequently had to deal with. And that directly led to their breakup, um, that, uh, before they got back together. Um, and Matt kept going, you know, he kept playing in bands around town. You know, we have a great label here in town called suburban home records, uh, run by a great fellow named Virgil. A lot of people know Virgil. Um, and, uh, suburban home put out a couple albums by matt's next band ghost buffalo um which he started with a woman named marie who was his wife at the time um and they got divorced and continued to try to do the band um and it was kind of like if planes had this kind of dark country rock kind of feel um and then with a woman with an incredible voice singing um you know they were a really really great band um, but I think they just weren't country enough for the Americana people. And they maybe just were a little too twangy. You know, obviously, it was at a time when tons of country-type people, you know, Lucero was getting huge and stuff like that. But there was something a little bit darker and weirder about Ghost Buffalo. And again, I attribute that to Matt um, being someone who was never really content just doing something straightforward the way you would expect it to be. Um, if Ghost Buffalo had done just straight-up country rock, Americana-type stuff, alt-country, uh, it might have been a different situation. Um, but instead, they they toured a lot, but they mostly wound up being a, a band, a Denver band, you know, that people knew of here in town. Um, and, you know, the the rest of the story is, it, it, it is unfortunately not as you know, not as rosy. He, he started another band called Il Cativo here in town, which were a great, heavy, kind of post-hardcore band. They got to play some great shows, uh, you know, and made a couple great records. Um, but uh, Matt uh, continued to have battles with substances. Um, he wound up being homeless. Uh, and when he died... He, Uh, here uh, about three weeks ago he was actually living uh, on the streets here in Denver um, which he had been for quite a while Um, and you know it's kind of one of those things that's, that's really tough and I know we've all been there where we've lost someone tragically in our lives and you know we we have to think like man did, did I do enough as a friend? Um, you know did any of us here who knew Matt? Um, a lot of people here in town had done what they thought they could, um, and he was getting help here and there uh, um, but ultimately uh, it it wasn 't enough um, and so he was arrested uh, here in the suburbs of Denver. Um, and he had a gun on him and that got him landed in, uh, in jail. And, uh, he hadn't been in jail that long when he was found, um, hanging, uh, in his jail cell. And, and that was how Matt died. Um, and so it's, man, it's just, it's really tough. You know, when you lose someone like that. And, again, I know we've all been through it, but, you know, all you can think about are the things that he accomplished, the potential that he had. He had kids. Um, He had so many people that just adored the fuck out of him. Um, And, you know, he was 40 years old, and these days you can completely relaunch anything at the age of 40, especially if, like Matt, you had really established um, yourself uh, you know, nationally, internationally as a musician like he had. Um, and I don't mean to break it down into terms of, oh, the music Matt could have made, we'll never hear it, um, because obviously that pales in comparison to a little boy who lost his father, um, to former bandmates and family members, to the people who knew him most, um, who could give a fucking shit about the music. That it's the person that you know that they'll they'll never see again. People die all the time in this scene. You know, um, it happens constantly. Uh, it is something that is, uh, you know that's a problem obviously uh that even in you know even today that with all the cautionary tales that we have in history that um it's still not that easy uh to always avoid temptation and and the worst parts uh, of being an artist or a musician and, and having a lifestyle that sometimes permits you um to be a little crazier uh, than if you worked a regular nine-to-five job. And, you know, I, I I don't know. You know, I don't know um, what went through Matt's mind at the end. Obviously, no one does. I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know what he felt. Uh, I have a clue. I can listen to his music and you know, uh, I know, I always knew you can when you get to know someone and you can tell that there's a sweetness to them, but underneath there's a very deep pain. Um, you know that that becomes real obvious, and that sweetness, you realize how much it's really strength, um, an incredible, inhuman strength. Um, and if there's anything that I would like people to know about Matt is that he was an inhumanly strong mankind uh even it, it, even being a bastard at times uh just a, just an incredible fucking quality human being you know and uh um yeah it was great he is also the guitarist that maybe wrote some people's favorite songs of all time you know, um, I know a good many people and I always circle back to Copper and Stars because that is a song that, you know, um, I mean, I've seen fucking crowds of hundreds of people just and I'm sure you probably have to just fucking break down when they hear that song on stage. Just absolutely, you know. Just you, you, you know, you feel the weight of that song on people, and it and it's freeing them at the same time. It me that song means a lot to people, and a lot of plains as music does. So yeah, Matt did that. Uh, you know, Matt contributed to to some of those things. Um, but you know, maybe in all our lives, the things that we accomplish and the things that look good on paper, um, those are great, uh, but. You know, it, none of that measures up to just one little kid losing his dad. You know what I mean? Like, that that's always going to be the toughest thing. Or losing a great old friend that you've, you know, spent uh, just untold thousands of hours with. Uh, and, yeah... I don't really know where else to go from there, man, but yeah,
0: sorry to ramble. There was no reason for me to interject. The, you know, John Bunch, you know, to hear about Matt, and there, there's definitely been others, but John was...
1: As far as I'm concerned, he is the architect of melodic emo. Like, it. Like, he's it. You know what I mean? Like, I remember when Texas is the Reasons album came out, and they're split with Promise Ring, and I was like, oh, this is really good. Like, I really liked this better when it was Sensefield, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, no knock on, on text is the reason, you know what I mean? But, but yeah, I mean, one of the greatest voices ever. You know, sadly, you know, it's like, uh, you know, one thing that just really popped into mind was I was writing something about Matt for our local paper out here, and right at the same time, I got uh, a an assignment from the Atlantic to write about Grant Hart from Husker Dew, who died the same... Matt did, and I love Husker Du like just to the core of my being so much, and always felt a real affinity for Grant Hart songs, even over Bob Mold songs. And so I'm writing that, and I just realized that fucking um, Matt's uh, Matt's last band, Il Cattivo used to cover Don't Wanna, uh, Don't Wanna Know If You're Lonely by Husker Du which is a Grant Harp song um, and then it just they used to cover that live and it just like just one of those things where it was like this kind of chance conversion of of details you know while I'm just doing my regular writing assignments just kind of fucking knocked me on my ass you know
0: thank you for uh, taking the time to do this
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. it. It, you know, it's great just to be able to to talk a little bit about maps. So I think, thanks a lot for that.